Praise the Lord. Father, we just thank you for this time of worship that we've already had this morning. We thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your wisdom in this place, giving direction and instruction that only comes from you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for healthy bodies and healthy minds. We thank you that our, our spirits are attentive right now as we turn our attention to your word. That your word is quick and it's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides between what are our thoughts, what are worldly thoughts, and what are your thoughts, Lord. And we seek your thoughts and your instruction and your wisdom today, not in the wisdom that man teaches, but the wisdom that compares spiritual things to spiritual things. And we know that the spirit is life and it is health and we thank you father that your word is life and health to all our flesh and so we thank you lord that right now as we return our attention to your word revelation knowledge flows in jesus name amen and amen well how's everybody doing this morning well, last week we had an awesome time with uh, Tropical Sunday, and we were a little off task with our message. We went a different direction, but this week we're getting right back into our series on the book of Colossians. And we still got a lot to cover in this series, and we'll probably just we'll take a break every once in a while and go hit some other things, but we're going to get through this book of Colossians this year. <laughs> you know, I told you before that when I started out this series, my intention was, you know, four chapters, four weeks. And here we are in week number eight of this series, and we haven't even gotten through chapter one. And, you know, there's not, nothing wrong with that. We'll take time to break down what we need to break down and take all the rabbit trails that we need to get the understanding. We'll compare other scriptures to it because scripture interprets scripture. Let's say that again. Scripture interprets Scripture. You know what does not interpret Scripture? Your experience, your thoughts, or your opinions. You know what they say about opinions? Everyone's got them. They're not worth much. You know, the Word is what interprets the Word, right? And so we'll take all the time that we need. And, and really, when we're looking through taking our time in chapter 1, Paul says a lot of the same things again in chapter 2. Because in chapter 1, it's basically he introduces himself to the Colossians. He's not met them before, but he's heard things about them from Epaphras. And he, he's wanting to introduce himself and teach some core principles to them. But as he introduces himself, he just begins to pray for them. And, and the, the scribe who's writing down what he's saying, because that Paul did not write most of his own letters with his own hand, he dictated them to, to people. And so uh, as he be, just begins to pray, the guy's like scribbling down. You can just imagine that you know to what he's praying and then after he finishes his prayer he then begins to teach on those things that he just prayed about so while we haven't made it to chapter two yet a lot of the things that we've already established and covered in chapter one are already being taken care of so we'll be able to fly through chapter two but let's just take a look we haven't it's been a few weeks since we looked at our map the church at Colossae is what is what is now modern-day Turkey, and it was it uh, it was in the province of Phrygia, and so we were familiar with the book of Galatians, and Galatians was not written to a city; it was written to a region, the region of Galatia, which was right next door to Phrygia, which is where Colossae uh, was situated. Uh, other prominent cities in that area was the city of Hierapolis and the city of Laodicea. And so 
with the church of Colossae, we've told you that it was a city in decline. It was a city that used to have great prominence in that area. The trade routes from the east, so over here, would come through as they're heading into Greece and up into, uh, uh, then eventually across to Rome. Some would go north into what is now modern-day Ukraine and that area. But the trade routes used to go through Colossae, but several years prior to the writing of the book of Colossians, the Romans were changing their trade routes and establishing roads. How many of you know the Romans were very good at building roads and a lot of roads that they built still exist today 2,000 years later and so they decided it would be better for us to move the trade route a little bit north and it go, now went through Hierapolis and Laodicea and so what the prominence that Colossae used to had had been fading for several years and it just continued to get smaller and smaller now let's contrast that with if you look a little bit to the left we see on the coast we have the city of Ephesus which was a very prominent city in the area and went on to become the most prominent church in the region. And why do I point that out? Is because it had importance as opposed to Colossae didn't. But we have the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. And you know what's really interesting about them? They basically say the exact same thing. And so whether it's something that you think is prominent or whether, whether you think it's something that is insignificant, the word of the Lord is the same. Come on. The word of the Lord is good for whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're strong, whether you're weak. It gives you everything you need, and it's not one word for you and another word for another. No, the word of God is for all. He sent it to this earth for everyone. And so we, the reason we say that is because in our society, there's a lot of what we call subjective truth. Oh, well, that's good for you, but not for me. That's a bunch of hogwash. The word of God is truth. His words are truth. And it says when you taste and see that the Lord is good, my goodness, it'll transform your life. And so what's good for one is good for another. And so Colossae went on after, this, after the writing of this book and basically disappeared off the face of the earth. And the people of that region ended up relocating to what is now modern-day Armenia. Whereas the church of Ephesus went on and grew in prominence, and Paul's um, uh, protege, the one he was mentoring, Timothy, ended up taking over the church of Ephesus, and it exploded. And Ephesus was a city of about 300,000 people at that time, and it's estimated that there was over 200,000 Christians in that city. So two-thirds of the city. And we know what the book of Acts says about Ephesus. It's like there was such great upheaval. So many people came to Christ at Ephesus that they were burning all their books of witchcraft. They were melting down all their idols to the, of, uh, to the Greek gods. And, and the silversmiths were like, we need to do something about this. We're losing our business here. And so they tried to kill Paul. Well, they tried. Paul moved on, but the church of God kept flourishing. And so when we contrast these two churches, Ephesus and Colossae, Paul said the same thing to both because the word of God is applicable to everyone and it's applicable to you. Because there's mindsets that say, well, the word, you know, it, it's 2,000 years ago this was written. How, good, how applicable can it be to my modern day life? More than you know. <laughs> And so Paul starts, he introduces himself, and then he says in verse 3, We give thanks to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. 
And it says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And as I was reading through the book of Colossians again this week, that phrase really stood out at me because we often talk a lot about Bible hope, which is a confident expectation of good things to come. And we apply that to things here on this earth. You can have an expectation that God's good, good things come in your way and that you have a good future and a hope, not plans of destruction, but a good future. But that's not what Paul's talking about here in verse number five. He's talking about what's called the blessed hope. And that is whatever happens to me here on this earth, I know that this is not the end because I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven where I will stay with him for eternity. You know, we think about what the, the, the psalmist said in Psalm 118. He says, if the Lord is with me, and I know he's on my side, I shall not fear what man shall do to me. And come on, we think about the early church. Well, a lot of them got murdered. They were murdered in the, in the, in the Colosseum, and there was just a, a very much an oppression against the ch early church throughout the, the, the area of Rome. And and so when we think about it, why would they willingly, and if we read through, like there's a book called the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it, it's historical accounts of people who have given up their life for Jesus. And you know a lot of them? They went to their death with a smile on their faith, face because they knew this is not the end. I'm going to be with Jesus. And so whatever your life may feel like right now, you have a blessed hope in Jesus that if you've received him into your heart, you're going home to be with Jesus. What can man do to me? I don't have to fear what man can do. I always triumph in Christ Jesus. I always win. And when I leave this earth, I'm going to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so Paul's writing and he's saying, guys, I'm so excited about the love you have and because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. You have a hope here on earth, but you also have a hope, a confident expectation of good things to come in heaven. He says, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel or the truth of the good news, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. It says the word of God has gone into all the world, meaning Paul was taking it wherever he could, as often as he could, and everywhere he went, it was bringing forth fruit. When the good news of the word of God is applied, it brings forth fruit. If you're not seeing fruit in your life, you need to begin to apply the good news of the word of God, because whenever it's applied, fruit grows. Jesus said, I should that you should bear fruit. I want you to bear fruit. And he says, and that your fruit should remain. And so Paul says, the good news of the truth has come to you. It's gone into all the world. It's bringing forth fruit. And he says, as it is also among you since the day you heard it and you knew the grace of God in truth. And so the word of God always produces. If you need to see something produced in your life, begin to apply the word. Come on, you need health in your body? Apply the word. Lord, you said that by your stripes I was healed. You need provision in your life? You said you, you said in your word, Lord, that you supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Whatever it is you're going through, apply the word and it produces fruit. Amen? 
So Paul goes on from there and he begins to pray for the church at Colossae. And he, we've talked about, we spent three weeks on the first half of the prayer. about He says that you'd be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then what happens when you understand and apply the will of God. And about halfway through that prayer, his tone and his focus shifts. And we told you that he begins in his prayer to lay out what is called his Christology or his theology concerning Christ. So you want to know what Christ did? You want to know what that means for you? Read these series of verses and it tells you exactly what you need to believe about Jesus. And I read this to you two weeks ago. And this is a seminary textbook called New Testament Survey by Merle Tenney. And in his analysis of the book of Colossians... He says that the description contained in here is spoken in terms that can only be applied to deity. And so when you view Jesus, you have to understand that he is just as much God as Father God. He's just as much God as God the Holy Spirit. It's the Godhead three in one. And so I know there's lots of teachings out there that says Jesus was just a good man. Jesus was just a good teacher. He was just a prophet. No, he was the son of God and fully equal with God. And so the terms that Paul uses in the book of Colossians, particularly in this prayer, can only be applied to deity. And I love this. His last statement, he says, in creation in redemption, in the church, and in our personal lives, Christ must be preeminent, or he must have first place. In whatever area of your life it is, Christ must have first place. Christ in my family, Christ in this church, Christ in my job, Christ before my friends, Christ in everything, he must have preeminence, because he is worthy of it all. Amen? And so in verse 13, Paul's tone changes, and he begins to describe his Christology. And he says, he, and I put Father God in, in quotes here, so that you could understand that this first section, he talks about God, because after the end of this verse, he shifts, and it's all about Jesus. He says, he, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he's conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, who is the Son of his love. And so God did something when he sent Jesus. He commissioned Jesus and he said, go and do it, and Jesus went and did it, and that work, when you believe on it, it takes you out of the kingdom of darkness, and it puts you into the kingdom of his son, the son of his love. There's been a citizenship change. You can say, well, I'm a citizen of Canada, but above that, you are a citizen of heaven, and you are in the kingdom of God, and it's the kingdom of the son of his love. And it says, through Jesus, who is the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so in week number one on Christology, we spent a lot of time talking about how forgiven you are. Because you've been forgiven much more than religion gives credit for. And, you know, early on in, in my preaching, I didn't spend a lot of time talking on sin. And there's a very good reason for it. Sin is not a problem for the believer. Jesus has done something for it. And I had a lot of people over the years, oh, we got to preach on sin. Come on, you got to tell them to turn from their sin. But you know what the Bible says? 
It says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching them to deny ungodliness. We don't need to focus on the problem. We focus on the solution, which was Christ Jesus. And he said, your sins and your lawless deeds, I won't even remember anymore. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And so early, I didn't mention, spend a lot of time talking about sin at all, because sin is not the problem. A lack of understanding of your righteousness is. A lack of understanding of your forgiveness. Forgiveness is a lack of understanding of the justification that God has done on your path, a lack of understanding of faith, the authority of the believer, a lack of understanding of the grace of God. Those are the things that will transform your life. And you know, over the years, I've been pastoring for a long time now, like oh, we're in 16 years now, and over the years you find people who their whole focus is centered around sin. They come and they sit in the prayer times and they go, oh, God, forgive us our sins. No, no. Thank you, God, that I am forgiven by the blood of Jesus. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We already have that. We've been forgiven. Now, if you've fallen, the Lord will pick you up, dust you off, and lead you on. But we don't need to be focused on, oh, God, our sin, our sin, our sin. No. I'm no longer dead in my sins. I've been risen with Christ to life in Christ Jesus. So I've, if you've been risen where he, he is, seek those things which are above. Amen? And so sin is not the problem. But as over the year, in the last year or two, I've really shifted, and we've spent more time talking about sin, but from the aspect of you're forgiven. And because you've been set free and forgiven, it says those who are forgiven much love much. So we need to understand how forgiven we are. Verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, meaning he looks. If you want to know what, Jesus, what God looks like, he looks just like Jesus. He's going to do exactly what Jesus did. Why? Because Jesus said, I only do what my Father says, told me to do. I only do what I see him do. And so you want to know what God's going to do? He's not the mad, angry guy up there in heaven, and Jesus is not the good one holding him back. No, they're in agreement together. He's the image of the invisible God. It says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth. And we, two weeks ago, we spent our time here, where you often get the, the picture when we read Genesis that it was God doing the creating. But if you read the New Testament, it says everything was created through Jesus. And so everything on this earth was created through Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. And just because they were created through him and for him doesn't mean they still exist in that state. Come on, mankind was created to walk with God and talk with God, but we know there was the fall of man by Adam and Eve's choice. Satan was created, or Lucifer was created, for worship in heaven, and he decided, no, I'm going to exalt my throne above the throne of God and be better than him, and God said, gone. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. It happened so fast that he had an inability to even resist one single thought from God. And so just because everything was created for him doesn't mean that it exists in that state now. There are people whose hearts are dead set against God. Come on. So just because they were created to be in fellowship with him doesn't mean they are now. They have to come back with their heart open and receive him. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Okay, I'll take a breath because we're now caught up. <laughs> 
And here's where I want to spend our time on today. Verse number 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. God, Jesus is the head of the body. Now, the image that Paul is using here of a body is one that he often uses in his writings. In the book of Corinthians, he says that we are all members of the body or parts of the body and members individually. And we all have different functions. You were not created to do the same thing as your neighbor. God doesn't need all these just copycat parts. No, he made you unique and valuable within the body of Christ. And he says the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. They both need each other. And he says in the parts that we think are less important, he gives more prominence. And so Paul is no stranger to using this example of the body to view the relationship between him and the church. It says he is the head of the body. Can you picture? I'm a person. I've got a body. The head's here. The body's here, right? But what do we know about the head and the body? They're connected. And you wouldn't say one thing about your head and talk about it as though it's not connected to the body, right? Because they're connected. And what did Jesus pray? Father, make them one with us just as I'm one with you. He brought his sons and his daughters into fellowship and union with them where they're the body, it just has natural processes. Do you have to tell your lungs to breathe? No, the brain sends the signal and... <sighs> now, do you have to really, really focus and be like, I need my hand to move? No, the brain just says move and it goes, and it moves. Why? Because they're in connection together in unity and in harmony and one, and one together. We don't say, hello, John's head and hello, John's body. We just say, hello, John. And so we have to understand what Paul's saying when he's saying Jesus is the head and we are the body. We are one together, united and inseparable. Inseparable. Why? Because what happens when you separate the head from the body? It dies. And it would be really funny if we took, if Toph's head came floating in this door and then his body walked in the back. We'd be like, Something's messed up. This is a monster. This is a ghost. You know, we, and, and as we chuckle about just thinking about that, you know, um, back in 2008, I was in uh, Athens, Greece for about a month just preaching all over the city and in different churches. And uh, normally I would be in churches that, um, where one of my friends from over there would translate. But on this particular occurrence in 2008, I was preaching in a Ukrainian church. And so my friends, they spoke Greek and Albanian. They didn't speak Ukrainian. So I was using the church's translator, and she was Russian. And so she spoke 
a little bit of English, you could say. It was not a very good translation. And when you go abroad around, you're really at the mercy of your translator. And so she's listening to me in English. She's translating into Russian in her head, and then from Russian to Ukrainian, and telling the people. And I was preaching on the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the importance of it. And I made this comment about how the head and the body function together because what was good for the head is also good for the body. And if it was good for Jesus to wait, he received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, then his ministry happened. With his disciples, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then their ministry started to happen. And if it was good for the head, if it was good for his followers, it's also good for you because he sent the gift of the Holy Holy Spirit for you. And I said, if the, we have this, if the, it, was, it was good for the head, it's also good for the body. And I use that example. If we were to separate the head from the body, and the head came in one door and the body came in the other, we'd be like, oh, something's messed up. And as I said that, everybody kind of went like this. And I was like, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> and they would look confused. And you know, when you're preaching, a, a, a look of, I don't understand, is better than a look of, I don't care. <laughs> and over the years, I've had a lot of looks of, I don't care. Well, you need to care. If God said it's important in his word, you should care. But that was not the look I was getting. It's like a, what? <laughs> huh? And so I kind of pushed through, and I, I kept preaching. We went on, used other examples. And at the end, like 90% of that church came up, received the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, and it was a great time, and that church was very blessed. But after that... Um, the interpreter had left, and I was with the Ukrainian pastor, and a man came up, and, and he, he said, through, the, through interpreting through the pastor, he said, why did you tell us to cut off our heads? And I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't tell you to cut off your head. So now I understand why everybody's going, huh? <laughs> I don't know what she said to them, but it wasn't what I said, but thank God the Holy Spirit can work through language issues. But the head cannot be separated from the body. And in the same way in our thinking, we can't separate ourselves from what Jesus is and what is reality for him right now. As John said in 1 John, as he is, so are we in this world. So why would you talk about the head in a different state than what you would talk about the body? Right? When you think about what's going on in your life, and you're like, oh, I just don't have any opportunities before me. Is that true of Jesus? No. Oh, I'm just feeling so sick today. Is the head sick? No. But what do we know? Everything flows down from the head, the instruction and the life. And if, if the head is giving instruction to the body and the body's not responding, what do we call that? Dysfunction and disease. Right? We have neurological disorders where the brain's talking and the body's not responding. And for us as the church of God, if the instruction is coming down from the head who is Jesus, and we're getting instruction through the word of God, but we're not responding, we are in dysfunction, not the head. Amen? He is the head of the body, which means that any instruction that comes should be a, yes, sir, let's do it. Why? Because he, his instructions are meant to bring life. 
I'm amazed at how many Christians are afraid of what God might say to them because, well, I may not want to do that or that might not be comfortable for me. No, the instructions from the Lord bring life. It brings you into place of growth. It brings you into places of satisfaction. Even if there's external discomfort, there's a good plan and a good place that you're being brought through from. Amen? So he's the head of the body. And so when you see Jesus, you need to see yourself in him because you're connected. The head is not disconnected from the body. The second thing we can take from this statement, though, is when we're looking at, when you're saying someone is the head of something, that means they're the boss or they're the ruler. And we really need to think of God, Jesus in this fashion that he is the king. And now I've understood more and more in the last number of years that people aren't really comfortable with that idea. Because the, per the societal perception of a monarchy is not what it wants to be. They don't view it as a good thing. It's by, by and large viewed as a negative thing. Why? They see, oh, you're just some king who sits on a throne, and, and they equate it to, like, a dictatorship. Well, that depends on who the king is, right? A good king is better than a bad king. And just because there's been some bad kings naturally does not mean that your God is a bad king. Amen? And so when he, he says that the Bible says he is the king, man, he's a good king. Come on. Here's what Paul said to Timothy, his mentor, the one he was mentoring. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, he says this to Timothy. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. Let's just stop there for a second. God gives life, which means the commands that come down from our head, Jesus, are meant to produce life in all things. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Any idea what he's talking about there? The good what was the good confession that he was witnessed before Pontius Pilate? What did Pilate ask Jesus when he was interrogating him before the cross? He said, are you the king? And Jesus tried to dodge the question first and he said my kingdom is not of this earth and you only have the power that you're allowed to have Pilate and then Pilate got more spe specific and spoke plain with him he says are you the king and Jesus said it is as you say what is Paul talking about to Timothy here that very confession Jesus said I am the king and he says that you keep this commandment. What commandment? That he's the king. He's, that's a commandment that's issued down. It doesn't matter what you think you are. If Jesus is not the top and the king, you're wrong. And he says keep that commandment without spot and blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so that is a non-negotiable position. Jesus is the King. Instruction is given and you follow it out if you want to walk in life. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And so when we think about this kingship relationship, we really have to purge our thinking of our understanding of the monarchy in our normal modern society. God is not like that. Whatever, if you've had a bad experience or a bad outlook of it, put it out. God is good all the time. Here's a great statement. God is good, devil bad. Don't mix the two up. Come on, I've met so many Christians. If something good happens, oh, that was lucky. If something bad happens, oh, God must be teaching me something. No, they don't work together. They're not in cahoots. No, God good, devil bad, don't mix them up. God is king, and he's a good king. He's a good ruler who has your best interests at heart, and he gives life to all things. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, when you say that statement, king of kings and Lord of lords, people apply that naturally. Yes, there's kings on this earth, and he's greater than them. But that's not what he's talking about at all. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we often view Revelation as this apocalyptic end-time book, which it is, it has that, but that's not how it begins. The start of the vision that John has on the Isle of Patmos, he begins to write down, and the Lord gives him messages for the seven churches, the seven main churches of that time. And it says, John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne. Just a side thing, where do kings sit? On their throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So what has he done? We already mentioned that this morning. He's washed us from our sins. Sin's not the problem. By his blood. But here in verse 6 it says, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. He, when it says he's king of kings, it's because he's the head, but you also are to rule and reign together with him. Why is it important that we understand the kingship of Jesus? Because if you don't know how to be under authority, you also won't know how to properly exercise authority. Come on. Let's think back to the story in the Gospels where the centurion asks, comes to Jesus and says, my, my servant's dying. Come, I, I need you to heal him. And Jesus said, I'll come. And he says, well, well I don't need you to come. And he said, because I recognize that I also am a man under authority. And then I, I say to one, come, and he comes, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to one, do this, and he does it. Jesus, just speak the word, and my servant will be made well. But what was the realization? I understand that, Jesus, you're a man under authority, just like I'm under authority. 
whose authority he was under. He was under the authority of God. He came to do God's will and to carry out what he had been sent. And so in Jesus' understanding, I'm under the will of God and the authority of God. It allowed him to exercise authority here on the earth. When you first come to the realization, God's the boss, God's the king, and then that understands where the position it's put you in, that you can now exercise authority here on this earth. And that's why Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. Now you go and you do something with it. And so unless you submit yourself under the kingship and the lordship of the Lord, you won't be able to stand in the authority that was planned for you to stand in. You want to see change in your life? Understand the authority you have and where it comes from. You must first submit yourself unto God. Woo. You submit yourself unto God. And we have to not view that as a bad thing. Because his commands are just. His commands are good. His commands give life. He gives life to everything he touches. And, you know, even uh, the children of Israel back in the Old Testament, they had a different picture of what they wanted than what God wanted for them. And after they had come into the promised land, what the system that God had is whenever they needed help, he would raise up a judge. And that judge would be a mediator and act on his behalf. But they didn't have kings and rulers. Whenever they needed help, a judge would arise. And it would be one that was appointed by the Lord. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find this scripture in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old. Samuel was a prophet and a judge over the nation of Israel. It said that when he was old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So this is already in dysfunction and out of disorder. It was not his job to put a judge in order. Whenever they needed one, the Lord would have one arise out. And when they would, they would go fine for a while, and then when they got into trouble, he'd raise another judge up to lead them. And so it was not Samuel's place to put his sons in power. And so we already know this story starts in dysfunction, and what comes next is this. It says the firstborn was Joel, and the second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. And they turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Why? Because they were never meant to be in that position. And as we look at most people who are in leadership, we say absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's exactly what was happened. There was not their place to be the judge. God is the judge and he was bringing representatives as he saw fit. And it says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you're old. <laughs> I love that. It's like, you're old. Come on. We understand the position you're in. You're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all of the nations. And it says, but the thing displeased Samuel. Why? He wanted his sons. His sons were not good. It was not his decision to put them in, and he shouldn't have been there. And it says, they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And here's what God said. The Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people 
in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me that I should not reign over them. And so Samuel got a little butthurt and all this, like, oh, they don't want me, they don't want my sons. Good, they should be wanting God. But because of the dysfunction that was being displayed before them by Samuel and his sons, they said, hey, I think it'd be better if we had the things of the world. And God said, just let them have what they want. They don't know what they're asking. And he says, according to all the works which they have done, since the day that I brought them out of, the, of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me, they've served other gods so that they are doing also the same to you. Now therefore heed their voice, however, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And it says, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he'll appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. And some will run before the chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and he'll give it to his officers and his servants he'll take your male servants and your female servants and the finest young men and your donkeys and he'll put them to work he'll take a tenth of your sheep and you'll be his servants and you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day and so basically he tells them how a king is going to act before them and the implication is that whatever he's going to do you need to understand I would not do that and it would have been better if you left me in my place reigning over you and in the day you turn around I'm not even going to listen because this was your choice and so many people are going like, why is my life like this? Why is I'm in this position? Because you are getting what you have chosen. And if you want to be the king of your own life, you're going to have to suffer the consequences of your own choices. But when you make Jesus the king over your life in every area, he floods your life with good things. It says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in whom there's no shadow of turning. Amen? And so he gave them, gave them a king over them. But here's what Solomon said. He said, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. And my, my, did they groan. Oh, this was a bad idea. But thank God he ended that system. And how did he do it? He put Jesus back in the place where he needed to be in our lives. Jesus being the king over your life is never a bad thing. And if our thinking begins to shift like, but if I do what he wants, I won't get what I want. No, you do what he wants and you'll get more than what you want. The Bible says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. And so Jesus being the king is way, way, way better than you being the king of your own life. 
So he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. And so let's end this morning here taking a look at that same thought process, but in the twin epistle of the Ephesians. Paul, in his prayer for them in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, guys, I want you to know, and here's what he says he wants you to know. He wants you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards those who believe. When he's in his place in your life, there is an exceeding greatness of power that is flowing towards you, the believer. It doesn't say it's flowing towards humanity. It says it's flowing towards those who, come on, you say the word, believe. There's an exceeding greatness of power that flows towards believer. If you're a believer, there's more power than you'll ever need that is available to you because of your king, the head, Jesus. He says, and I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Or here's a better way of saying that in our modern way. You saw this power at work when... He worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What is the power that's available to you as a believer right now in this moment? It's the same power that split the grave and took something dead and made it alive. And so maybe you have dreams in your life right now that you're feeling they feel pretty dead. Let the power of God split the grave and rise it back up. Let those dry bones begin to come back to life and be taken form and have life in your life today. He says, so it's the power that was worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. He's the head of the body. Let's go back to the example. Heads up here. This is the body. Where are the feet? Down at the bottom. It says, all things are under his feet. Principalities, powers, every name that is named. Where are you? Say it again. Where are you? Above it. Whatever you're facing right now, what are you? Above it. Whatever the challenge is right now, what are you? Above it. Whatever the sickness is that's in your body, you're above it. Whatever the lack of opportunity that you may have right now, you are above it. And so we need to stop viewing ourselves of this disconnect. God way up there, Jesus up there with him, and me down here, oh, what a wretched man that I am. No! You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And all things are under your feet because he gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church. And here's what he calls the church. His body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And so he is the head of the church. He's the head of you. I began to change my confession a number of years ago, and I began to say this, and I believe it's really good 
for us to get in the habit of it. Lord, I am yours to command. Because I understand that your commandments are good. I can understand that your commandments are just. I understand that you're faithful and you are a giver of life. And so, Lord, I am yours to command. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for the place that you've given him. We thank you for the name that you've given him that's in the name that's above every name. We thank you for Jesus, who is the righteous and the just ruler, the one who reigns forever and ever and ever. And we thank you that as we began today, that we have a blessed hope in Christ Jesus, that we will rule and reign with you for eternity. But first and foremost right now, Lord, we declare you as king over all our lives. Jesus, you are the king. You are my King, Jesus. Hallelujah. King over it all. Jesus, majesty, ever risen one. Your reign for eternity. Hallelujah. Reign over it all. Yes, Jesus, Prince of Peace, Lord of Glory, you reign over it all. Yes, you reign over it all. And Jesus, you are my King, Jesus, you are my King, yes, We thank you, Lord, that in your presence is fullness of joy. We know that your presence has been here in this place. You said that as two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of us. Oh, we thank you, Lord, that we receive the fullness of joy today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. Hallelujah. Pastor Wendy, do you have something? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And allowing him to reign over us gives us a tremendous freedom. A freedom that in what he chooses is just what I want. He's not allowing, we're not having less than we ever desired. We're, we're not just not getting our own way. No. 
it's better. It's better with him. It's better. It's higher. Abundantly over anything that, that you could even ask for or even think of. Again, it's his thoughts are so much higher than ours. He sees down the road before us where we don't see it. So if we just obey and do what he tells us to do now, come on, come on, he's preparing us for the work that is ahead. He, he's bringing preparation, preparation in your life of obedience. If we can't obey him in the small things that just pertain to life, how will we obey him when it comes to life? What will you choose? When the pressure is on, what will you choose for you and your household? It may seem hard or grievous or, oh, I don't want to do it, Lord. I don't want to, I don't want to give to your work. I, I don't want to give my time. I, I don't want to give my money. That's my money. I work hard for it. But he says that if you give, he'll give back to you. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for you to be part of the greater work that he's doing. When we give into his kingdom, we will never, ever, ever lack. We will not do without. We may look at the balance books and think, I can't afford to give, but you can't afford not to. Invest into heavenly things. Invest with your time. Invest with your energy. Invest with your money, with all that you have. When things come into your household, be aware. You're blessed because of him. It's because of him that that came into your household. And so give your tenth back unto the Lord. If you were blessed with a new dress, ha-ha, give one. If you were blessed with new tires for your car, give one. If you were blessed with food and money in the bank, give. Because whatever is in your hand, he's asking you to obey, to trust him. To trust him. Amen? That's a hard word. Trust in God. Even though you may not see, you may not understand. But obey what he's telling you in your heart to do. Because he's trying to get something to you for your good. For your blessing. For your preparation of what is to come. If you can't trust him for the little things... You won't trust him when it gets hard. So he wants to prepare you. Give. Give of you. Give of you. Because he wants to give you more of him.
Well, praise God. <sighs> so, I actually, I had some, uh, for the offering, I had some other things, but I don't think I need to say any more. I'll just show you how you are able to give. You can give online, wordchurch.ca forward slash give, and where there's an envelope in the, in the seat, and there's a basket at the back when you leave. And, you know, the great thing about the kingdom of God is you don't have to give. You get to give. Amen? Amen. Amen. So the Word Care team is going to be up here in a few minutes. And uh, and uh, if you need prayer, if you want prayer for anything, if you didn't receive during all that great service we've had already, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. Amen. You are blessed. <laughs>